This is the Pop Culture Podcast, and this is our standard disclaimer. Be aware that the subject matter discussed this week will include massive spoilers about whatever movie, TV show, or other bit of media we talk about today. If you want to experience it in its original form, simple, then just don't listen to this podcast first. Go watch the movie, the TV show, read the book, read the comic, do whatever, Then get back to us feeling completely assured that you can listen to this podcast completely unspoiled. Consider this to be your one and only warning. Enjoy the show. Welcome once again to the Pop Culture Podcast. I'm Dave Ayers, your host, licensed professional counselor, suicide prevention trainer, and other things. This is our first episode as we finally get away from... 13 Reasons Why. And I'm kind of happy about it because I think at a certain point I'd had enough. I discussed it ad nauseum. I'd analyzed it from every single angle. It was a big undertaking and I knew that when I started it. But to be perfectly honest, I'm glad to be able to move on to other topics and other shows and things. It's nice to get into other areas of the world and really delve a little bit more deeply into the geekier side of things, which is... uh, where this podcast was intended to go to begin with. And today, what we plan to do is dig a little bit into one of the probably biggest characters that are out there in movies, and I think at this point branched out movies, comics, I think the movies made the comics bigger, the comics is where it started. We're talking about Tony Stark, we're talking about Iron Man. Iron Man is character dating way, way back into the early 60s, the early days of Marvel Comics and the early days of the Silver Age of comic books in general. He was one of the first characters that Stan Lee and Jack Kirby put together back in the day. And he's always been one of the mainstays of the Marvel Universe, but he was always kind of a, or at least in my lifetime, always seemed to be more of a B-level character, A-level character, somewhere in that range. He wasn't really one of the top, top guys. He was... One of the mainstays, one of the long-termers, but he was never one of the most popular until that 2008 movie with our friend Robert Downey Jr. suddenly turned him into a sensation and, at this point, probably possibly the biggest comic book character in the world, or at least as far as the movies go, the biggest movie comic book-based character out there. And he's really, it's been a fantastic job by Robert Downey Jr. Okay, yeah, maybe he's largely playing himself, but it's a fun character, he's enjoyable, And more so than literally any other character in comic book movie history, we've been able to watch his growth and development. No no character has appeared in more movies. No one's had a longer tenure in the movie screen. And really, frankly, at this point in time, you look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and it's, it's impossible to really argue that Tony Stark doesn't have some sort of influence on pretty much every aspect of everything going on. He is the guy. He is the man, and he's a dude who's struggling. He is a guy who has been struggling with things. We've seen that as part of his character development over the last 10 years. He's had some experiences that he maybe wasn't prepared for, despite the fact that he's a man who's pretty good at preparing for almost everything. But he's experienced things that maybe he just mentally wasn't ready for. So... 
What is that? Well, the question is, and it's come up and it's been asked. Actually, it's even asked blatantly by one character in one of the movies. And that's what our focus is today. Does Tony Stark have PTSD? Does he legitimately have PTSD as portrayed in the movies? It's a good question, actually. And it's something I think people have talked about and it's been tossed around. I've seen it mentioned here and there, but I don't know that I've seen anybody really delve into it and really look at it and take a moment and say, you know... Is this accurate? Is it not? I don't know how many people really, really think about it. Again, it's mentioned briefly in Iron Man 3 as Tony is speaking with, and does anybody remember this kid's name? Anybody? I had to look it up. Harley Keener. I did not remember that even a little bit, and I probably have seen the movie about four or five times. Kid's name just did not stick in my head even a little bit. He just was that kid. So anyways, he's talking with the kid and he gets a little freaked out. And we'll talk about that down the road. But the kid actually asks him, do you have PTSD? That's the only time I hear it mentioned at all throughout any of the movies um, where it would make sense that somebody might ask the question, pose the question. But it only comes up that one time. Not sure why that is. Maybe that's just the only writer of any of the movies who thought to really pose the question. So, again, as we look at it and we see... Tony Stark's character development throughout the course of the movies. I think we see a guy who's who's really taken a hit, maybe more so than maybe a lot of people, a lot of the characters around him notice, and maybe a lot of the viewing public notice. So let's take a look at that real briefly here. Let's let's talk about what exactly Tony Stark is. Let's talk about what he looks like at the beginning. Tony Stark, as we meet him in Iron Man, is cocky, self-assured, hedonistic. He is a guy who doesn't take much of anything seriously. He is, as he puts it, genius billionaire playboy philanthropist. That guy, that's him. Off the cuff, never really thinking too much about the consequences of his actions, living moment to moment, impulsive, all those things. Yeah, we, we see him selling weapons to the military with that in mind i humbly present the crown jewel of stark industries freedom line it's the first missile system to incorporate our proprietary repulsor technology they say the best weapon is one you never have to fire i respectfully disagree i prefer the weapon you only have to fire once that's how dad did it that's how america does it and it's worked out pretty well so far so right there, you see a guy who's very blasé about war. He's very blasé about weapons and violence and military. He doesn't have much concern about what's possibly happening in the world, facilitated by the weapons he's selling. It's just what he does. It's how he makes a living. It's how he makes money. And the money enables him to drink and spend time with women and drive fast cars and do all those impulsive, reckless things without thinking that we see him doing in the build-up parts of that movie. And we see him just, you know, having fun goofing around with the with the soldiers. Come on, it's okay, laugh. Hey! Sir, I, I have a question to ask. Yes, please. Is it true you went 12 for 12 with last year's Maxim cover models? That is an excellent question. Yes and no. March and I had a scheduling conflict, but fortunately the Christmas cover was twins. Anything else? You're kidding me with the hand up, right? Is it cool if I take a picture with you? Yes. It's very cool. And that includes all the stuff with, you know, you see him, he's, he's a womanizer. They're, they're talking about it and it's, it's a big joke. You know, how many women you slept with and yada yada, you know, take your picture. And that's his reputation. 
he he is a party guy. He he's a guy who lives life loose. And why not? Because he can. I mean, frankly, I get the impression he's a guy who's overall probably largely bored with life, which is why he has to do all these things to keep himself interested. Building weapons, eh, maybe it's not quite challenging enough to him at that point. You know, maybe he's he hasn't really pushed himself to go beyond that. And because he's no longer challenging himself, he's no longer pushing himself, he's bored. And you get bored, you get into trouble. I know a lot of us do. And he did to a large extent because, well, he had the money to support that. And then even after that, you see him, after he becomes a hero, he's still the cocky, self-assured guy who, who will challenge authority at every step. It's working. We're safe. America is secure. You want my property? You can't have it. But I did you a big favor. I have successfully privatized world peace. What more do you want? Again, think of that. That's a a guy who's in your face with a congressional hearing. He doesn't care. He's humiliating his competition. He's making fun of him. He's making fun of senators. He's completely in your face. And, of course, at that point, we don't know that he knows he's dying. So he's slowly dying, and that's even gotten worse. It's even increased his risk-taking behaviors. So we see later, you know, we we see him, he's always been a bit risk-taking. You know, one of the first things we see is, you know, him deciding to take the suit out and fly, even as Jarvis is warning, it's a little early for that. No, no, you you got to run before you learn to crawl. You know, and nearly killing himself because, hey, he didn't anticipate the freezing issue when he flew to high altitudes. And then it just gets worse from there because now he's racing. You know, he, he impulsively decides to hop in his Formula One racer and drive a car he's never driven before. Looked like he was doing okay. Now maybe he's had some experience. Oh, yes, he has had experience. We watched him driving his, I think it was an Audi, if I'm not mistaken, in the first movie, racing happy to happy hogan racing him to the airport but tony spent a lot of his time and i think still even at that point with that looking at it he spent a lot of his time having what is called in the business a personal fable that's usually associated with adolescents who get into a lot of questionable activities risk-taking behaviors because ultimately they they honestly don't really think they will likely die they always think they have control of the situation they always think that the bad things that could happen really only happen to other people because maybe those people are dumb or they didn't think about it. That won't happen to me. I got it. I'm cool. Well, that's personal fable. Tony lived with that for a long time where basically he, he didn't believe anything bad really would happen. And to an extent, even when something really bad was happening, I guess he decided either one, it really wasn't going to happen then or two, screw it, I'm dying, so I'm going to live life a bit. I'm going to do some things and I'm going to push some boundaries and I'm going to experience some things I've never experienced before. Fair enough. Fair enough, Tony. So that's the guy we get to know early on. This is the guy who's not concerned with with authority. He is not concerned with thinking too far ahead. He is not concerned with making big plans And he's certainly not concerned with bending his will to anybody else. He's used to getting what he wants and doing what he wants. We even see a small example of that in Avengers, where Thor shows up, Thor wants Loki, Tony's getting ready to take off, Captain America says, dude, hold up, we need to plan. What's Tony say? I've got a plan. Attack. Boom, gone. Does it himself. 
He is used to doing the things by himself and operating as a solo act. That's Tony as we get to meet him. That's the early Tony before all the stuff hits the fan. So, okay. So when did things really change? I think we all know when things really change. It's pretty well highlighted later on. Things change for Tony during the Battle of New York. That's when it really hits. Prior to that, Tony was waging small-scale battles with small-scale villains for the most part. Guys, he really had it over. Yeah, okay, in both cases. And I notice this seems to happen a lot. I really always seems to come up with a better armor than Tony does. <laughs> and Tony figures out how to beat them through his brains rather than just through the armor. Stain did that to him. Obadiah Stain, he, he came up with a bigger, stronger armor. Tony figured out how to beat him with the Pepper's help. And then Ivan Vanko shows up and, okay, he comes up with something that gives some some problems to Tony, but he really wasn't ultimately that much of a challenge. Yeah, in the end, his armor was bigger and stronger, and it seemed even combined, Tony and, and Rhodey couldn't beat him until they pulled a little trick they discovered by accident. So, yeah, there's that. But for the most part, he wasn't really coming up against anybody that he couldn't beat. He wasn't encountering anybody that he wasn't able to stop fairly easily. And then these are guys that are just kind of challengers to him. Now, all of a sudden, he, he's literally in the middle of a war. This is an alien invasion. It's full-scale combat. It's, it's battle and on a scale he's never encountered. He's never experienced anything like this. And it's got serious, very serious life-or-death consequences, even to the point where he nearly gives up his own life, flying a nuke into a wormhole. The next thing he knows, he wakes up on the ground. At that moment, I think he assumed he was dying. He had his, his heard Pepper's voice for the final time, could not speak back to her. He's floating in space somewhere. And that's it. Suddenly, he thinks he's going to die. And let's note the reason why this would impact him differently than, say, any of the other Avengers, not just because he's the only one that flew the nuke into the wormhole, but let's look at what the who the other Avengers are. Let's look at these other people that he's with. Tony Stark up to about a couple years before that date in, in the MCU timeline, was a businessman, a partying, hedonistic, billionaire businessman. His teammates in the Avengers? Well, let's see. Two of them are, as he describes himself, assassins. We're talking about Hawkeye and Black Widow. Or spies, assassins, soldiers trained for combat, trained for killing, and they had done so in the past, repeatedly. They got military-type backgrounds. You know, that's what they're used to knowing. That's what they have known for a very long time. Thor, all right, god of thunder for one. Two, raised to be a warrior. That was him. Raised from the beginning as a warrior and had done it for thousands of years. At that point, I guess not thousands. I'd take it back. He did state his exact, give or take, age in Infinity War, which is 1,500 years. So he had done it for hundreds of years. And for him, death comes much more... <laughs> it doesn't come as easily as it does for a human, as we saw. It's exceedingly difficult, on average, to kill an Asgardian, especially Thor. Meanwhile... We've got the Hulk, 
All right. Well, I think for the Hulk overall, at that point, at least in the Hulk's development in the MCU, a lot of that had very little meaning for him. He was literally a big green rage monster who was nigh invulnerable, but who was largely brainlessly beating on things. Cognitively speaking, there wasn't much processing of trauma that was going to happen for him. Although sometimes I think there's an impact on Bruce Banner, but just in a little bit of a different way, more indirectly, because he didn't remember doing those things. He basically had to read about them and feel guilty about them. So different, different situation for him. And then finally, we have Captain America. As Nick Fury describes him, the world's greatest soldier. Yep, that's a guy who, again, like the others, was brought up in and had fully experienced war. And largely from a perspective of a guy who was almost always, <laughs> almost always, really, always, up to that point at least, the best soldier on the field. So that's a guy who never really maybe faced his death quite as clearly on a battlefield as as a lot of other guys would. Obviously, yeah, he faced his death one time when he crashed a plane into the Arctic. That was intentional, and that wasn't on a battlefield. In the battlefield, he always won. And he won this one, too, with these guys. So they're, they're all these people who have these backgrounds, these combat training backgrounds, these military backgrounds, or had the inability to remember what they experienced on the battlefield. And then there's Tony. Genius, billionaire, playboy, philanthropist. Not the guy necessarily to be on a battlefield for the first time. And I think Shane Black in writing Iron Man 3 was pretty wise to recognize that. That this is a different guy than the other ones and this is going to affect him differently. And so I think the way it impacted him was pretty creative. All right, so now that we've discussed that and we've, we get a good idea and it's pretty clear where things change and why they would change and why they might affect him differently, let's talk about exactly what PTSD is. Let's take a look at what the diagnostic criteria is. And when I say diagnostic criteria, that means what are we doing? We're turning to our old friend, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, commonly known in the business as the DSM-5, because we are on version 5. Because I know all of you non-clinicians out there care which version it is. But that's it, the DSM-5. All right, so PTSD, as described by the DSM-5, has several criteria for diagnostics and a few sort of optional ones or additional specifiers, but the main ones, criterion A, and that could be usually one of four things, direct exposure, witnessing the trauma, learning that a relative or close friend was exposed to a trauma, or indirect exposure to aversive details of the trauma, usually the course of professional duties. In other words, first responders, medics, People who maybe don't see the trauma, firemen maybe, who show up on the scene afterwards and are basically there to help clean up the mess. Criterion B, and again, for each of these criteria, only one of them needs to be present to be diagnosed. So, so criterion B is basically described as a traumatic event is persistently re-experienced, and that can be one of several ways. Unwanted upsetting memories, nightmares, flashbacks, Probably the best known one is the flashbacks. Emotional distress after exposure to traumatic reminders or physical reactivity after exposure to traumatic reminders. So in other words, talking about it, bringing it up, that person starts to have that same emotional reaction or that even physical reaction. Criterion C, which is avoidance of trauma-related stimuli after the trauma. That's usually, you know, avoiding trauma-related thoughts or feelings, avoiding trauma-related reminders. In other words, not wanting to talk about it, not wanting to hear about it, 
doing anything they can to get away from it. Criterion D, negative thoughts or feelings that began or worsened after the trauma. And things like inability to recall key features of the trauma, overly negative thoughts and assumptions about oneself or the world, exaggerated blame of self or others for causing the trauma, negative affect, and in this sense, affect in the business means basically how you present moods through your facial and body actions and movements and things like that. In other words, if somebody has a frown and their head's looking down, that's they look sad. We'd say, you look sad. That's okay. A sad affect. It's, it's kind of a funky word to encapsulate all of those things that, that go into recognizing somebody's mood without asking them or hearing them say it. We just call it affect because we needed a fancy word for it. Uh, decreased interest in activities, feeling isolated. You know, the difficulty experiencing positive affect. It, it basically means you have trouble smiling, have trouble laughing and enjoying life. Criterion D, when you really put it all together, sounds a lot like depression, doesn't it? That's a strong component when you really get into PTSD and why sometimes it's difficult to differentiate the two, uh, depression and PTSD. And criterion E, trauma-related arousal. Stop it. Get your minds out of the gutter. Trauma-related arousal and reactivity that began or worsened after the trauma. In other words, irritability or aggression, risky or destructive behavior, Hypervigilance. Hypervigilance is a fancy word for feeling like something bad is going to happen all the time. At any given moment, something bad is going to happen or feeling like you got to watch out for people and everybody are threats. Uh, some people will call it paranoia. It's not really paranoia, but the idea that you feel like everybody you see is possibly a threat. I get it. I get why that would be called paranoia. Heightened startle reaction. Difficulty concentrating. Difficulty sleeping. And in criterion F is a simple one. It just says the symptoms last for more than one month because a lot of people may experience a lot of these things just in recovering from the initial trauma. So it's not PTSD unless it's become something that doesn't go away. Most people will resolve this stuff. Most people will recover from it because we have resiliency skills within us that help us get through these things. When a person doesn't, when it lasts for two months, six months, a year, that's when it is PTSD. And of course, a couple other things just to make sure we're clear. Criterion G is symptoms create distress or functional impairment. In other words, social, occupational, just day-to-day -day functioning. Criterion H, it's a rule-out criteria, actually, where basically it says symptoms are not due to medication, substance use, or other illness. So that's a rule-out one. Basically, one would say, just make sure you check that this isn't something else that could account for what the person is experiencing rather than PTSD. So there's all your criteria. That's the things you look for if you're a mental health clinician and you're trying to decide, does this person I'm working with possibly have post-traumatic stress disorder? So now we get back to Tony. We, we start talking about that and we get back to him and we look at this criteria for him. So criteria A is talking about the exposure. We've already talked about a big one for Tony, the Battle of New York the going into the wormhole, the facing his death, is obviously the biggest exposure he had. But guess what? There's a lot more than that. That's the one that maybe gets the most attention, but let's think about what else this man has experienced over the course of these 10 years and all these movies. One, just the general, the Battle of New York, civilian casualties. Yeah, you know what? It's PG-13, and yeah, you know, it's, it's the Marvel Universe, and they don't dig into... Too much of the way of the death, destruction, and gore and all that. But if you want to be honest, clearly a lot of people died during that battle. 
They get talked about a lot, but there are clearly a lot of civilian casualties in it. They get into a little bit more when they talk about things in Civil War, Captain America's Civil War, where General Ross is is reviewing, you know, what happened in the various big battles of the movie series. And New York is one of them. And then, of course, when Hydra was outed and S.H.I.E.L.D. fell apart in D.C. and Sokovia, of course, all of that. There's civilian casualties all over. We don't see a lot of them. I am sure somebody in Tony's position in the midst of all that would be seeing a lot of them and certainly would be aware of them afterwards. News reports and such, I'm sure, would report how many people died during each of those clashes. Then we get to Iron Man 3, and he watches Pepper. He thinks he watches Pepper die. And and she dies in the midst of him trying to save her and promising her she's going to be okay and he's going to save her. And then something happens and takes it out of his control and he watches her plummet to what he believes will be her death. It doesn't matter that she came back later, there was that moment. And it's kind of like the moment he had in the wormhole where he thought he was going to die. Yeah, he didn't. But he faced his death, and then he faced her death shortly after. Then, of course, during Avengers, you know, we kind of skipped over one in the timeline. Coulson. Coulson had become something of a friend. Certainly he'd gotten chummy with Pepper because she knew his first name was not Agent. And Coulson, despite his his usual casual snarkiness, liked him. Coulson was a little bit of that 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 glue that helped bring some of these folks together and tied them together. He was the guy who appeared in the previous two Iron Man movies and Thor and all that. And we could see how that impacted Tony, that loss of Coulson. Was he married? No. There was a uh, cellist. Sorry. You seem like a good man. He was an idiot. Why? For believing? For taking on Loki alone. He was doing his job. <laughs> he was out of his league. You should have waited. You should have... Sometimes there isn't a way out, Tony. Right. I've heard that before. Is this the first time you lost a soldier? We are not soldiers. There it is. I mean, again, it sort of gets back to what I said. We're not soldiers. That, that moment where Steve refers to them as soldiers, Tony's reactive to that. Because I think in many ways, you could also say Tony re- related to Coulson maybe a little bit more than some of the other folks, because Coulson was a non-superhuman. Tony may be a superhero, but he's not a superhuman. He's a guy in a can, as he puts it. He's a guy in a suit. And Coulson was a guy in a suit. And if Coulson was in over his head, I'm sure to an extent, Tony felt in over his head at times during that. So there was a loss. Thinking about it, that was actually, in many ways, Tony's first loss. Or was it? Ah, see, it's easy to forget one of them. He didn't get incredibly close to him, but if you recall, there was a gentleman named Jensen back when Tony was creating the first Iron Man armor in that cave with him. The gentleman that helped him and who, who also gave his life in the course of helping Tony escape. So that was Tony's first loss, really, wasn't it? That was the very first one. Yinsen and Coulson. Those are just humans, just regular guys. Yeah, they weren't billionaire playboy philanthropists like Tony, but they were guys. They were non-powered guys. Then you add in guilt that comes along with all this stuff that starts to pile on. You know, and, and some of it Tony experiences immediately. You know, he wasn't directly involved with what happened with Rhodey and Rhodey's injury and, and almost death during Civil War. 
But he was there. He witnessed it. He was experiencing it. And obviously, he gave Rhodey that armor that brought him into that dangerous situation. And then later he learns of the kid in Sokovia that got killed. The young man whose mother confronts Tony at the elevator at the beginning of Civil War. More guilt. And then he gets to watch a video of his parents dying at the end of that same movie. He watches his parents murder at the hands of a guy standing five feet from him. So not only did he have that old guilt about how he left things with his father in their final words together before his father died. I mean, he watched his parents die. He watched his his significant other die, the woman he loved. He nearly watched his best friend die. This guy's been experiencing a lot. And he was not someone who was brought up to be equipped to deal with all of that easily. So exposure, yeah. He, he's got Criterion A all over the place. And I think a lot of the stuff people tend to forget, but he's got it all over the place. So check on Criterion A. Criterion B? Okay. So that's the re-experiencing part. That's the part where we talk about him seeing and re-experiencing the traumas one way or another. And, you know, whether it's upsetting memories, nightmares, flashbacks. Well, he's got a bit of that too, doesn't he? As we see in Iron Man 3, we talk about, you know, he's having nightmares. We see him having one in the middle and it triggers his autonomous armor to get aggressive with Pepper, which obviously makes her a little unhappy. I wouldn't want to be wakened up that way either. Not the way he wanted to happen. So he's having the nightmares. We see him have a flashback in Age of Ultron. Yeah, that was a flashback induced by Scarlet Witch at the time. But I think a lot of what happened there, Scarlet Witch tended to tap into some of people's deepest fears. And that was Tony's deepest fear. That was still very deeply in his head. So chances are, was he still thinking about it otherwise elsewhere? Sure. Was he maybe still occasionally having nightmares at that point? Most likely. I mean, the only therapy we ever saw him get was with Bruce Banner. And as Bruce mentioned, he's not a therapist. So I don't know if Tony ever saw a therapist. He needed to go see Doc Sampson. Doc Sampson is a psychiatrist and a superhero. And if you don't know who I'm talking about, chances are we'll never find out. The character was actually briefly introduced in The Incredible Hulk, played by the gentleman whose name I can't think of at this moment, Phil Dunphy is the character he plays on Modern Family. Uh, does anybody remember that? I wonder, did you remember that without me mentioning it? You may not have. You're going to all go back and want to look at that now. So that's a digression, but we don't know that Tony ever got any therapy for any of this. We don't know that he ever got any help for any of this. We do see him having panic attacks later on with Iron Man 3. And, you know, like we get this one here in the diner. Stopping the Mandarin is priority, but... It's not... It's not superhero business. No, it's not, get quite it. frankly. It's get American it. business. So I said I... Got it. Okay. <sighs> Broke the crayon. Are you okay, hey, Mr. Dark? Take it easy. Tell me. How did you get out of the wormhole? Wait a minute. Tony. What are you saying? Tony. <sighs> Sorry. Let's check out. Suit. Check the heart, check the, check the, is it the brain? No sign of cardiac anomaly or unusual brain activity. Okay, so it's poison? My diagnosis is that you've experienced a severe anxiety attack. 
Me? Yeah, it kind of crept up on him with he didn't even realize it was happening. Until it was, boom, deep into it. And I'll slightly disagree with the terminology that Jarvis uses, but hey, Jarvis is not a trained clinician. He refers to it as a severe anxiety attack. We usually refer to them as panic attacks. Yeah, he had a panic attack. That's, that's pretty much one of those classic things that happens for folks with PTSD. And then, of course, later we get back to his discussion with Harley Keener. Did anybody forget that name again already? I darn near did. Harley Keener, the kid, in this scene. You know what this crater reminds me of? No idea. I'm not, I don't care. That giant wormhole in, um, in New York, does it remind you? That's manipulative. I don't want to talk about it. Are they coming back? The aliens? Maybe. Can you stop? Remember what I told you that I have an anxiety issue? Does this subject make, make you edgy? Yeah, a little bit. Do Can you, I just catch my breath for a second? Are there bad guys in Rose Hill? Do you need, do you need a plastic bag to breathe into? Do, do, you, do you have medication? Nope. Do you need to be on it? Probably. Do you have PTSD? I don't think so. Are you, are you going completely mental? I can stop. Do you want me to stop? Do you want me to Remember stop? When I said I to stop, stop doing that? I'm swear to you, you're going to freak me out. So now we see two occasions here where very clearly he is having problems with reacting to the the previous experience, the, the, the negative experience, the traumatic experience. That's that physical reactivity and emotional distress. He had both anxiety and he had physical panic where... He's got short of breath and he's starting to shake and things like that. I imagine his heart rate was going up a little bit you know, and all that. And he's starting to hyperventilate. Criterion B, yep, I think he's got it. He's got it pretty good. So Criterion C, the trauma-related feelings and trauma-related reminders, the avoidance of these things. To a large extent, we see that with him talking with Pepper about the problems he's having that he's not been telling her about. I'm a piping hot mess. It's been going on for a while. I haven't said anything. Nothing's been the same since New York. Oh, really? Well, I didn't notice that at all. You experience things. And then they're over and you still can't explain them? Gods, aliens, other dimensions? I'm, I'm just a man in a can. The only reason I haven't cracked up is probably because you moved in, which is great. I love you, I'm lucky, but honey, I can't sleep. You go to bed, I come down here, I do what I know. I tinker. Threat is imminent, and I have to protect the one thing that I can't live without. That's you. Here he is, he's talking about it. He's got this imminent threat. He's, he's always worried that something's going to happen. He's worried about protecting her in particular. And he's worried about what he's, you know, being prepared for everything. That's why he's got 40 some odd armors now, because he's trying to make an armor to deal with every single situation that he possibly can think of. So he's always got something ready if needed. He's planning. He's hyper planning. And he's not sleeping. Take note of that. As he mentioned, he is not sleeping. And that's not a thing you want to do if you want to keep your state of mind stable. That's asking for trouble for anybody. It does kind of remind me at times that there's certain aspects of Tony that makes one wonder, could he possibly have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder? Could he reasonably have bipolar disorder? All the hyper-creativity, the extra energy, yada, yada. Might be a stretch. Just something in the back of the mind. The not sleeping for long periods of time, that's not necessarily uncommon when it comes to bipolar disorder. 
So we'll stick that in the back pocket for now. Maybe we'll revisit it someday. And then you have them getting into the debate about creating Ultron, the debate that Tony has with Banner as they're talking about it. I see a suit of armor around the world. Sounds like a cold world, Tony. I've seen colder. This one, this very vulnerable blue one, it needs Ultron. Peace in our time. Imagine that. He's still worrying about aliens coming back. He is still preparing for this. He's almost like a doomsday prepper at this point in time. He is so anxious. He is so worried about what's going to happen and wanting to make sure he's covered all bases. And the anxiety, the wanting to protect the world with a giant suit of armor, like basically put everything in a box and, and seal it away so that nothing can ever happen to it. Tony's a scared man at this point. That's what's driving him to create Things like Ultron. And in Infinity War, I don't have a clip for that, sorry, but we talk about the fact that as he's confronting Doctor Strange and saying that Thanos has been in his head for six years. So again, he, he re-emphasizes how the impact of the Battle of New York has been affecting him for all this time. How he's been thinking about that so hard. So this is a guy who spent a lot of that period of time between the Battle of New York an Infinity War feeling exceedingly anxious and exceedingly worried and waiting for that next thing to happen and preparing for that next thing to happen almost obsessively. Meanwhile, Criterion D, it says negative thoughts or feelings that began or worsened after the trauma. So where do we see that with Tony? So the question is really, did they begin or did they worsen at that time? Again, Tony was living this, this hedonistic impulsive, devil-may-care lifestyle. But one wonders, to an extent, as I said before, was he maybe bored with a lot of that? Did he really feel good about what he was doing? Like, there's a certain extent where, you know, I'm here selling weapons, blah, 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 I'm giving the speech. I like the weapon you only have to fire once. Boom, boom, boom. You know, he just seems so very blasé, and, and like, he's just going through the motions at that point. And I'm left wondering, you know, between losing his father and the poor relationship he had with his dad and this kind of going through the motions life of selling stuff and making lots of money and it's all very easy. How much did he like himself at that point? How much did Tony Stark like himself? Did he like himself? Did he not like himself? Did he look down on himself? Did he feel he'd accomplished as much as he could have? It's a good question. He very quickly gravitated to being a hero when he saw the opportunity, when he realized what was going on. There's a part of me that says he did that so quickly because maybe he didn't feel very good about himself and he wanted to do some stuff that felt good. He wanted to make a difference in the world. He wanted to feel like he mattered. Maybe. But we'll never know for sure because I don't know that any of it was put in writing in any of the movies to say one way or the other. We just know he was a guy who was goofing around. And we know things changed after the Battle of New York. So... His first bit of guilt did come up with the weapons manufacturer issue as he was confronted with what was going on because of the weapons he sold and how he facilitated warfare and violence and death on his own as part of Stark International. And that was part of what drove him to become Iron Man. And that drove a lot of what happened in Iron Man 1 and Iron Man 2. But then we go a little further and maybe there's even more that was going on. Think about this. A famous man once said, 
we create our own demons. Who said that? What does that even mean? Doesn't matter. I said it because he said it. So now he was famous and basically getting said by two well-known guys. I don't, uh, I'm going to start again. Create our own demons. So at this point in time, he is essentially blaming himself for what happened with Aldrich Killian and everything that went on in Iron Man 3 with Extremis. All right, he didn't treat the guy really well, but that doesn't mean he created that demon. That doesn't mean that Tony Stark is solely responsible, but he thinks he is. He thinks he is. He has taken responsibility for everything that happened there, which means he took responsibility for watching Pepper die, for thinking he killed her and getting her caught up in all that. And he took responsibility in his mind for what happened to Happy Hogan. So in his mind, if he created Aldrich Killian the villain, then everything that happened there was because of him. So that's a little excessive guilt. The kid that died in Sokovia. I always get a little annoyed at some of these scenes because you've got these people that they are angry about the Battle of New York and angry about Sokovia. All right, so Sokovia, Tony can feel a little bit guilty. He's, he created Ultron and he owns up to that. That was him. He, he takes ownership of that in Civil War. But it wasn't intentional. And granted, being an accident doesn't absolve one of guilt. And at the same time, they did what they needed to do. But yeah, a lot of people died, including that kid. People in New York, uh, that wasn't the Avengers' fault. Not at all. They did what they could, but people wanted to blame them for deaths there. Those deaths were largely unavoidable. But Tony's taking on that guilt. And again, we look back, he's doing a therapy program. I guess maybe we talked about maybe he didn't do therapy. Maybe he did. He was trying to do it with a machine by re-experiencing aspects of his life and certain points in his life, including the last time he saw his parents. There's guilt there. I think the guilt isn't so much about them dying as it is about the fact that he didn't reach any kind of reconciliation with his father, that he left his father with snarky sarcasm as the final words his father heard from him, and that their relationship was so crappy, so estranged at that time before his father died, and that's all Tony was left with. So he's guilt there. He's holding on to a lot of guilt for a lot of things that aren't necessarily all about him, but in many ways are partly him. Then you see, of course, over the course of the movies, we do see a change of personality. It's, it's a little bit subtle because aspects of his personality come out at different times. When he's goofing around with people he doesn't know very well, he's Tony, the way we've known him. When he is with people that do know him, we see a guy who's a lot less jovial. We see a guy who seems a lot more frustrated and angry. You see that in a scene where they're having the debate about the Sokovia Accords, and he's frustrated about the coffee grounds in the in the disposal. And he is, as Natasha points out, uncharacteristically non-hyperverbal. He's quiet at that time. It's not just because he's made a decision, but it's because he's reflecting on everything, and he is seeing how these accords reflect his own guilt. They validate his feelings of guilt, that anything that they've done that resulted in, in destruction or death it's just plain and simple their fault to feel guilty about. It validated all that. And this is why he now changes. This is the guy who told a senator flat out, kiss my ass, you can't have my property. You're not getting my property. Go away. To a guy who's now signing Sokovia Accords. He's now signing over responsibility for his actions as Iron Man to the United Nations, largely, to world governments. And he's doing it very willingly. Not just because he thinks he has to but because he thinks they need to. He's suddenly the guy who, who went from being impulsive and devil may care and I'm going to do what I want to, we need to be put in check. If we have no limits, we're just like the bad guys. 
He's now comparing himself as he was to bad guys. Oh, that's Charles Spencer, by the way. He's a great kid. Computer engineering degree, 3.6 GPA. Had a floor level gig, an Intel plan for the fall. But first, he wanted to put a few miles on his soul before he parked it behind a desk, see the world, maybe be of service. Charlie didn't want to go to Vegas or Fort Lauderdale, which is what I would do. He didn't go to Paris or Amsterdam. Sounds fun. He decided to spend his summer building sustainable housing for the poor guests where? Sokovia. He wanted to make a difference, I suppose. I mean, we won't know, because we dropped a building on him while we were kicking ass. There's no decision-making process here. We need to be put in check. Whatever form that takes, I'm game. If we can't accept limitations, we're boundaryless. We're no better than the bad guys. Suddenly he's so serious. Suddenly he's a guy who's not joking so much. I mean, think about that movie. There are very few jokes. The, the most joking he does is largely with Spider-Man. Beyond that, pretty serious, pretty frustrated. And it carries over into Spider-Man. I mean, he's looking for what? He's looking for redemption, self-redemption through Spider-Man. He's trying to help this kid become a better hero. I did listen, kid. Who do you think called the FBI, huh? Do you know that I was the only one who believed in you? Everyone else said I was crazy to recruit a 14-year-old kid. I'm 15. No, this is where you zip it, all right? The adult is talking. What if somebody had died tonight? Different story, right? Because that's on you. And if you died, I feel like that's on me. I don't need that on my conscience. Yes, sir. I'm yes. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry it doesn't matter. I understand. I just, I just wanted to be like you. And I wanted you to be better. That's it. It's like he looks at it and says, I'm a lousy, I was a lousy hero, I'm crappy, I want you to be the good guy. I want you to be the better guy. I want you to be the guy who thinks through things better than I did. I want you to be the guy who who cooperates with authorities better than I did. Iron Man's not feeling good about himself. And a lot of that stems from this trauma, all this trauma that he's experienced at this point in time. And even in the sense that he seems isolated by the time you get down to it, let's let's look at the the timeline when we get from Iron Man to Infinity War. I mean, he developed relationships and friendships with Natasha and Clint and Steve Rogers and, and, and Wanda to an extent. By the time everything's done in Civil War, they're alienated. He's not talking to them. He's not seeing them. He hasn't, and Infinity War, he hasn't spoken to any of them in however long it's been since that occurred. Uh, meanwhile, you know, Thor and Banner, both off world, they're not around. Nobody knows where the hell Fury and Hill were post-Age of uh, Ultron. They were out there somewhere. Maybe Hill was still working for Tony, maybe not. I'm not clear on that because we don't see her again after that. And, of course, by then he's realized that she was still in touch with Fury and he didn't know it. And, of course, at the end of Affinity War, we see her and Fury hanging out. So she and him were, I don't know, don't know what's going on. And Vision was wherever Wanda was. By that point in Civil War, he's on a break with Pepper. So the love of his life is no longer with him. About the only friend he's got at that point in time who's left is Rhodey. That's it. So whether he isolated himself or whether his actions isolated him or whether circumstances isolated him, he certainly seemed pretty isolated by the time we got to it. 
at least for him, he developed something of a relationship, the mentor relationship with Spider-Man, and had reconciled with Pepper. By the time Spider-Man was done, as we get into Infinity War. But other than that, he's not in contact with anybody else. And then finally, Criterion E. We're talking about some of those emotions and feelings and, and the hypervigilance and all that stuff that we talked about earlier. You know, the trauma-related arousal, as they call it. You know, that, that, that physical, emotional reactivity that goes on. And the hypervigilance, again, we, we kind of underline that when he's worried all the time that something bad's going to happen. You know, he, he expresses his worry about alien invasion in three movies. We'll say four, but the fourth one's Infinity War because, hey, I knew this was coming. So, but he's expressed it in damn near everything he was in. And we don't know. Is it, I wonder if his sleeping has resolved at all since Iron Man 3. Do you think that's still going on? Hard to say. It's not brought up. Pretty much impossible to know. And, of course, we saw a lot of the risky and destructive behavior going on. A lot of that mostly was in Iron Man 2 and had to some extent probably some relationship to what he believed was his, again, his impending death by poisoning from the palladium in his chest. But the, the racing, the impulsive fighting with Rhodey, the drinking, one of the things they never got into with this version of Iron Man that they got into the comics was his battle with alcoholism. I think to an extent, maybe I wonder if at one point in time in development, Iron Man 2 was going to be about that more, that he was just going to be drinking and acting like a risky ass over all this stuff versus slowly dying. You know, that's a possibility. They may have changed that a little bit. It's hard to say, but we saw it happening. And one of the things you notice is there's very little drinking you notice that's done by him after this, which is good. But we see a lot of that risky and destructive behavior that goes on. And that's always kind of been a part of him. But when he's facing death, yeah, it seems to come out more. And he takes chances more. And of course, let's think about an Iron Man 3. That's especially the part where he's dealing with that. The dude impulsively challenged a terrorist and gave him his home address. Talk about risky and impulsive. Talk about taking chances. He invited exactly what happened. Helicopters with missiles blowing up his house and nearly killing him. So again, all this risky and impulsive behavior really has been a part of Tony's personality for a very long time, but some of it gets amplified a little bit when he's going through these periods of, of post-traumatic responses. All right, moving on. We've only got three criterion left. They're pretty small. Criterion F, symptoms lasting longer than one month. Yes, they most certainly did. That's a definite easy yes. Criterion G, functional impairment? Well, we see that for him mostly in his relationships. Uh, whatever relationships he has with a lot of people are often difficult. As we saw, he tended to, you know, to, to alienate people. And, of course, especially Pepper, when we're looking at things where they went during Civil War. That was a big problem there because he just wouldn't stop what he was doing and it drove them apart. Yeah, they got back together, but... He is a fairly resilient guy. And finally, Criterion H, which is ruling out things that could be otherwise impacting his mood. Yeah, he's got a history of drinking, but that pretty much was over and done with. So that's really not part of it. He's not taking any other medications that we know of. So here we go. We've summed it all up. And based on all these things we have just talked about and reviewed at this point in time, I'd have to say, yeah, Tony Stark is a guy who could legitimately be diagnosed with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And it makes sense. Everything going on 
you know, when we look at his life history, we look at what happened with him in the course of the events, especially of phase one of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it's legitimate. It's, it's reasonable to say the guy has at least some level of post-traumatic stress disorder going on. His responses, his attitudes, his moods, it's somewhat inconsistently portrayed at times. I think they really started to dig into it heavily with the whole Iron Man 3 period of things. I think Shane Black really hit on a good idea there with, with how Tony Stark would likely respond to the events he experienced. And I think it kind of got Eh, pushed aside a little bit. It got reduced a little bit. They, I guess they didn't decide to harp on it and make a big thing about it. Maybe it was decided to an extent he had resolved it by the end of Iron Man 3 because, hey, look, he blew up all his suits. He got the arc reactor out of his chest and tossed it away. He had come to the realization that the suits didn't make him. He made the suits. And that regardless of whether he was wearing one or not, he was a hero. And that's all true. But just that immediate realization doesn't mean it's an end to everything. Some people complain that, oh, well, then they backtracked that for Age of Ultron and everything. Well, you know, having an epiphany one day does not necessarily mean one is cured, so to speak. One is now past all their issues. Those issues still remain to a large extent. It takes a lot of work for people to get past that. And maybe that's the important thing that people need to remember. Dealing with a mental illness, recovering from a trauma, any of those things, there's no quick trip. There's no simple destination. Oh, I've reached my destination. I'm now through it and I'm done. And I put it away forever. It's not how it works, folks. It takes a lot of maintenance. It takes a lot of ongoing attention to how we self-care, how we take care of ourselves on a day-to-day basis that gets us through that. And it doesn't erase what happened. It doesn't make the illness or the issue go away. It just means that at a certain point, we aren't giving it the time and attention that we used to, and we're giving more time and attention to things that help us feel good, feel content, feel safe. So Tony did what he did in Iron Man 3, and it was a bit of an epiphany, and it helped him move forward a little bit and change his perspective somewhat, but he didn't change everything else he was doing. He didn't change much of anything else he was doing. And essentially, his continued actions as Iron Man just re-exposed him to trauma over and over, And it's not clear what level of work he put into developing other coping and resiliency skills to help him manage that re-exposure to trauma events and trauma situations. So, that's it. I am in agreement that he has PTSD. I guess I'm in agreeing. I'm not sure who I'm agreeing with, to be perfectly honest. Who said it besides me? I don't know. The question was posed in Iron Man 3 by, who's his name again? Harley Keener. There you go. And that's it. So I don't think I have much more to say about it. I'm in agreement. I think that's the truth. I'm interested if people have other thoughts. Certainly feel free to leave comments if you agree, disagree one way or the other. If you think I'm off base, you think I'm stretching things a little bit. I don't think I am. I'm usually pretty good about that. But I'm I'm very interested to know what others might think as well. Feel free to tell me what you do think. So thank you again for joining me for our first post, 13 Reasons Why episode of the pop culture podcast i hope you found it entertaining enlightening hope you pick something up out of it maybe a different perspective maybe a different idea and maybe a better understanding of ptsd whatever it may be i hope you enjoyed it i encourage you to join me next time i encourage you to check out the other podcasts if you haven't heard all of them 
I thank you for your time. I look forward to talking to you again in a couple weeks. Our next episode, it's a mystery. I'll surprise you with it when we get there. In the meanwhile, remember, be kind to everybody you meet. You never know what battles they are fighting. When you see things portrayed in movies and TV reflecting mental health, mental illness, I'm the guy to turn to to help let you know if they're accurate or not. Take care.